If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent covering Democrats for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Drush, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. With so many contested House, Senate, and gubernatorial races around the country, we at McClatchy wanted to help you stay on top of the news. To do just that, we're partnering with Ozzy, the online magazine meant for the change generation, on a new series called Ground Game. It's all about the races you need to know about and what they mean for national politics. Ah, I'm jealous. Alex has already been to Orange County, California on this project. Don't forget Modesto. I've also been to Modesto, California. How could we forget Modesto? And you're reporting on this with our colleague Katie Glick. Even better. Yeah, it's been really fun and it's only just begun. Today, we're going to talk about the ground game with Daniel Malloy from Aussie. He joins us from North Carolina, where he's following the Senate and gubernatorial races across the nation. Then we'll have our own Katie on from New York. She's going to help us figure out why so many young and hungry veterans are running for contested seats. All right. You ready? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. We couldn't launch the Ground Game project here on Beyond the Bubble without bringing back an old friend, my boss, Kristen Roberts, former host of the show. An old friend. Old friend. Is the stress a on the boss. old or on the friend? It was, it was definitely, let the record reflect, the stress was on friend. And boss. And boss. Boss def- Definitely current boss, yes. Current. I'm your forever boss. Forever boss. I'm your forever boss. Eternal boss. What can I tell you guys about our amazing projects? So why don't you tell us about why you thought that this was the best way for McClatchy to cover the 2018 elections? Totally. I love talking about this because... Ground Game is our political play, and uh, you can hear probably the smile in my voice because we all love covering politics, and we all love covering politics in an election year. And so I sat down with Katie Glick and with Alex some months ago and said, what do we want to do here? I mean, we're not going to cover all of the races in 2018, so how do we do something really distinctive? And we started talking about Senate battlegrounds, but everybody does Senate battlegrounds. The three of us did Senate battlegrounds some years ago at National Journal. And what Katie and Alex suggested was to focus in on the House, which is a much harder thing to do. And so what I asked them to do was to sort all of the competitive races into what we call archetypes. And they came up with three archetypes. And I'll let Alex jump in and talk a little bit about one or two of those. Sure. You know, if you're thinking about what matters the most in the midterm elections, there are two voters who come to mind, right? You're talking about the person who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 and probably did so enthusiastically, right, who then in 2016 switched in a very big way and was voting for Hillary Clinton. You find these voters in a lot of the new suburban battlegrounds. And in fact, just last week, I was in Orange County, the OC, talking with a lot of these voters who would never have even dreamed of voting for a Democrat as recently as 10 years ago, who all of a sudden, 
you know, consider Donald Trump nothing short of an unpatriotic coward, which some of them used uh, when describing the president to me. If you're talking about another key voter, well, how about someone who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, who then voted for Donald Trump in 2016? There are a lot of those voters, and there are a lot of those voters in what I would consider more older battlegrounds, the kind of battlegrounds we've seen for years, where the white working class has really swung between both parties over the course of several elections, and now firmly in the GOP camp. And the question for Democrats, and it's a really big question for 2018, is whether or not they can win them back because a lot of those seats are their top targets for for 2018. Uh, Just one other example off the top of my head. What about strong Republican incumbents? Because we've seen this where Democrats, particularly in 2016, they thought they could rely on Donald Trump to take down some of these incumbents in left-leaning seats. Well, it didn't happen because these lawmakers had their own reputation, their own brand. The question is whether or not Democrats are going to be able to pierce through that in 2018. And maybe, just maybe, by doing so, by not talking about Donald Trump, talking about something else. Yeah, so, you know, the ground game project really is animated by a single question, and that is, can Democrats engineer a wave election in 2018? And so the McClatchy piece of this are six of those House races that we think serve as archetypes to tell the story of the battle for the House. And then Ozzie comes in, and they're doing six races as well, three gubernatorial and three Senate. And altogether, we think it's going to tell a really interesting story that might give us a clue early on about whether this is going to be really a blue wave or just a little fizzle and the Republicans remain in control. Should be fun for some bubble dwellers like us. (laughs) (laughs) Something new. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, boss, thank you so much for coming on the show. Guys, I just want to say the show has been great without me. So well done to all three of you around the table. I'm loving Beyond the Bubble. Thanks. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're going to go from one editor at McClatchy to another editor at Aussie. Daniel Malloy is the politics editor at Aussie. He is partnering with us on this big project to tell you everything you need to know about the 2018 midterm elections. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ox. Been a longtime listener and fan. <laughs> Daniel, we, we, it's what we like to hear. Um, so, Daniel, you know, we were just talking, Kristen, about a lot of the, the house races that uh, we at McClatchy are focusing on. You at Aussie, you're bringing something a little bit different to the table, focusing on different kinds of races. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So our plan is kind of in relation to yours. You're doing six House races. We're going to cover three gubernatorial and three Senate races for six total on our side that we think are, are really sort of compelling and interesting and kind of give you a snapshot of, of what's going on across the country this year in very different places. We've got for the Senate, Arizona, Missouri, and Mississippi. And for governor's races, we're looking at Georgia, Michigan, and Maryland. These kind of run the gamut geographically. They run the gamut for types of candidates you're going to see from rising stars who are women, such as uh, Stacey Abrams, who could be the first black female governor in American history. And in the Senate, some of the races that could decide the fate of the chamber, including a place like Missouri, which has your classic red state Democrat in Claire McCaskill, who's uh, fighting for her life in in a pretty Trumpy state. Those are the big fish of the Senate races. Talk to us about Missouri. You were just there. Yeah. So this is a really, really fascinating race. This is a this is a state where Trump won by nearly 19 points in 2016. But you have a, a two term Democrat, Claire McCaskill, who's got a moderate kind of a profile, though she hasn't gone uh, as far to the conservative side as some other swing state Democrats. Uh, she's very closely tied to, to President Obama, having endorsed him early in 2008 and been seen as sort of an ally during his Obama's eight years. So now she's running against a guy named Josh Hawley. 
Aaron and I have been thinking a lot about the future. The future of our boys. The future of the country. And that's why next year, I'm going to run for the United States Senate. Who is uh, 38 years old, young, compelling, really dynamic guy. He is the attorney general of Missouri, but only recently became the attorney general. He was only elected in 2016 uh, and very quickly pulled into running for Senate. He's a very compelling speaker. He's dynamic on the stump. I spent some time with him down in the southwestern part of the state in, in Springfield and got a little sense of him. And he's he's a guy that national uh, Republicans in D.C. are very excited about. They see him as a rising star. He was a former clerk on the Supreme Court for John Roberts. He's, he's a pretty impressive politician uh, and sharp guy. But he's running against, you know, one of the political institutions of the Senate, Claire McCaskill, and, and she's she's a very effective campaigner. Um, she knows what she's doing as well. And so what you have is a really interesting dynamic where Hawley's perhaps biggest threat right now comes from his base. And actually, while I was in Missouri a couple weeks ago was when Governor Eric Greitens resigned. We take you to Jefferson City, Missouri, where embattled Governor Eric Greitens is speaking. He's faced scrutiny, possible impeachment over a sex scandal. Good afternoon. Today, I am announcing that I will resign as governor of Missouri, effective Friday, June 1st at 5 p.m. And so this issue has dominated the media, uh, including McClatchy's own Kansas City Star, doing a good job of covering what Greitens is going through. But basically, Hawley had kind of turned on him and suggested that Greitens resign. Well, the Greitens fans in the Republican base did not like this at all. They see him as, as selling out their governor. Uh, one woman who I talked to compared it to what's going on with Trump and the FBI, and she said the deep state of Jefferson City is out uh, for Eric Greitens, which was, uh, which was pretty interesting. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, probably not as big as Washington's deep state, but it's it's still there. Wow, that's, that's some hot drama. That is that is a real drama. <laughs> we, should, we should say our, our our own Lindsay Wise here in McClatchy's DC bureau has really done some stellar work reporting on all of this. One of the most depressing things about covering 2016 was that every single Senate race went the same way as the presidential race, and it was like, what is even the point of covering these separately? <laughs> but Missouri was by far the most interesting because Trump won by 19 points, but then. Jason Kander was a three-point race in the Senate race. So I feel like this was this is going to be the most interesting one to watch because of all the states, it's definitely the, the biggest gap between the Senate race and the presidential race. One would almost went the other way by a huge margin. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Andrea. The, like, there's a lot of crossover voters there who backed Jason Kander, who who didn't like Roy Blunt. But the interesting thing, I think, for McCaskill is that is that incumbency kind of worked against Blunt, I think, a little bit there. And so you may have people um, just sort of fed up with D.C., and that's what Hawley, you see, is trying to capitalize on saying. Oh, my gosh. I mean, she has voted with Chuck Schumer almost 90 percent of the time. She won't secure the border. She won't stop the offshoring of American jobs. She's voted. It's essentially a change election uh, in his mind, even though Republicans control uh, the levers of power in D.C. currently. Missourians seem to have like a remarkable ability to keep their politicians separate from party. <laughs> rare, rare in, in, in modern politics for, for sure. Dana, we wanted to talk with you about a gubernatorial race in Georgia, a state you know well, has maybe one of the most compelling races in, in all of 2018. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Georgia is one of these states, and, and you mentioned I used to work for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and, and covered state politics there. And it's it's been for a long time seen by Democrats as a great opportunity. This is a, this is a red state, but one that we feel like we can flip at some point in the not too distant future because of the rising number of minority voters. So what you've seen there is a, is a lot of hype. 
in a lot of work to sort of encourage turnout in the minority community. And that effort was really led by Stacey Abrams, who was the uh, minority leader in the state house. Very compelling, dynamic speaker, has a great personal story growing up poor in Mississippi. And she has long been sort of on the national radar as someone who was really doing the work to help increase the minority vote in Georgia to register and turn out new voters there. It hasn't worked. The Republicans control everything in Georgia. They have consistently been consistently kind of, you know, in the five point range. So here comes Abrams now saying, well, I couldn't get anyone else over the finish line. I'm going to do this myself. She's running for governor and leading this charge. And so she won her primary overwhelmingly. In fact, it was a surprisingly easy victory for her in their May primary against uh, Stacey Evans, another Stacey who is a uh, state legislator there. So now she turns the general election where you've got two statewide office holders and Republicans who are competing in a runoff, which will happen uh, in July there. And you've got Casey Cagle, who's lieutenant governor. And um, he's running against the current Secretary of State and Brian Kemp. And these guys are statewide brand names, have been elected. Uh, they're pretty well known to voters. And they are now doing the job of trying to out-Trump each other. In fact, just this morning, uh, in the wake of the news coming out of Singapore, Casey Cagle declared that Donald Trump deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. No doubt, Brian Kemp will follow in, in some form or fashion. How, so, do you, how do you top that? If you're Brian Kemp, how do you top Nobel Peace Prize? For that, I guess that's what his strategy is. Become the godfather of your child. (laughs) It's right, (laughs) right. Naming my firstborn Donald. I don't know, or or Kim. So I I want to ask you because you talked about the the Democratic plan to to drive up turnout in the base, and it reminds me, you know, the Democrats, as you know very well, Daniel talked a lot about this in the 2014 Senate race. At that point, that was Michelle Nunn was running, and there was this whole thought then that the the party could capitalize on the state's admittedly very rapid demographic change. That could be a breakthrough. Now, they came up pretty short in in 2014, fair to say. I I guess my question is, how much skepticism should people have about Georgia turning blue, even in in what appears to be a good political year nationally for Democrats? I think you've got to have a lot of skepticism, and I think Georgia, you should think about in a, in a similar manner as, um, as a state Andrew knows in Texas, where there, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of excitement, but you know it's still a red state. And especially when you get outside of Atlanta, it's very red. So it's going to be tough to do. I think what you saw the Democrats really debate in their primary is, is the Abrams model of uh, finding and turning out these new voters. And the Stacey Evans model, which was more reaching out, she was sort of a, a rural white Democrat or grew up in, in a rural part of the state, now lives in Atlanta, but of sort of reaching out to these Trump voters and trying to win them over. Stacey Abrams is basically saying, Nah, forget that. We need to excite our base, get them excited. And, you know, 2018 is a great test case for that because Democrats, as we're seeing all over the country, are very fired up, Republicans less so. So if it's going to happen, this would be a great year for it, you would think. But people should still be pretty skeptical of, uh, of Georgia turning blue. Okay, great. Hey, well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to having you on uh, the podcast regularly. Sounds great. Okay, so we want to dive in to at least one of the categories that we picked, the wave seats in 2018. Our own intrepid Katie Glick has already been to North Carolina, has already written her story, really diving deep into the seat. Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me back. So you visited North Carolina, which is basically a suburban, exurban Charlotte, and took a, a long look at this district. What did you find? 
Sure. So the 9th District of North Carolina is one of a long list of districts that really on paper should not be in play unless we are looking at a potential wave scenario for the Democrats. But I did, in fact, spend some time on the ground there uh, in the Charlotte area, as you noted. And on the ground, it does really feel like that district is in play. There are, you know, it's very much a conservative district traditionally. It's been held by Republicans for a long time. Donald Trump won the district uh, by a sizable margin. But but um, when I was there, I did encounter a lot of voters, especially these sort of moderate suburban women who were very uncomfortable with the direction of the Republican Party, even if they don't typically identify as Democrats. Um, and you could really sort of feel how they were fueling a more competitive race than the kinds of races we usually see in districts like that. Yeah, we were just talking to a, a Republican operative um, last week, McClatchy, who said, if you win suburban moms, you've won the entire House map. That was their key demographic? Yeah, I mean, that the suburban moms are putting in play a lot of seats um, that have been, you know, long-time sort of Republican strongholds. But, um, but a lot of those voters who do fit into that demographic are deeply uncomfortable with the direction of today's Republic, Republican Party, even if they do like things like tax cuts and even if they don't like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, so, I mean, North Carolina, is this not the kind of district that should be on the map? Right. Right? I mean, this isn't a place that... Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton even really came close to winning. I mean, when Republicans talk about this seat, is there concern that it's in play at all? I think that there is recognition that it is in play this time around, and certainly there's concern about that. You know, I think Republicans uh, feel that they still have a strong shot there. So, you know, we have on the Democratic side, Deanne McCready, the sort of moderate Marine veteran who, you know, says he does not support Nancy Pelosi um, for Speaker if Democrats take the House back, and is really trying to win over some of these more moderate suburban women voters. But, you know, then he is also running against a Republican, Mark Harris, who is very conservative, um, a longtime pastor from the area. But, you know, Republicans on the ground there do say that even though he is quite conservative, especially in a number of hot button social issues, that's actually a pretty good fit for what is a conservative district fundamentally. And so, you know, I think that there is concern about the extent to which this is in play. Um, typically, as, as you noted, it wouldn't be in play. But um, certainly Republicans aren't seeding it. And Democrats telegraphed that strategy early on, that they thought maybe their best way at uh, making a play at some Republicans was veteran candidates. And we just talked about Jason Kander earlier, a veteran in Missouri who came pretty darn close in the Senate race. What else is there to that? Well, Connor Lamb, um, of course, uh, really tested this theory. Um, and in his test case on Pennsylvania 18, a district that President Trump won by around 20 points, Lamb, a Marine veteran, a prosecutor, a Democrat, uh, of course, as we remember, he actually won it. And at the time, and Alex and I wrote about this, I um, mean, you know, there were a lot of Republicans who said, you know, Lamb is this dream candidate. No one can recreate him. This was a one-off. But the reality is that there are a lot of Democratic candidates around the country who have resumes that are very similar to Connor Lambs. You know, Dan McCready would be one of them in North Carolina. Um, with that sort of moderate approach, um, the Marine background, you know, like Lamb went to, uh, you know, has a very impressive resume in terms of, uh, you know, his educational background. Brendan Kelly down in Illinois, yeah, maybe even more in the Lamb mold because not only is he a veteran, um, he's also a prosecutor. Um, and you kind of hear both politicians talking about that experience as well. So there's actually a lot of people who do fit that profile. And, you know, the test, of course, in November will be, you know, whether Democrats at a moment when it's not a special election can convince, you know, some of these Republican voters or Trump supporting voters that it is worth it to vote for them, that they're independent enough from the National Party, that, that it's OK to give another seat to the Democrats um, for voters who really are uncomfortable at the same time with the idea of a Democratic majority. 
Right. I mean, it, it feels like that the military is one of the few institutions that Americans generally still trust. And I think that's a, a big reason why you have uh, such a, an emphasis placed on recruiting veterans. Katie, you know, you and I have been talking about this, though. It's interesting to point out. I mean, there was one Democratic congressman in particular who's behind a lot of these candidates, who's helped recruit them, who talks with them all the time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Seth Moulton from Massachusetts? Sure. Uh, I've been bothering Seth Moulton on a lot of stories recently um, because I, I have been uh, following a number of these Democratic Katie, you don't bother anyone on any, any stories. <laughs> you're, you're always, always very polite, I've, I've found. Oh, well, thank you. I'm sure some sources would, would disagree, but I hope everyone thinks I'm polite. But, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so Moulton um, is, uh, of course, Democratic congressman from Massachusetts, um, has been very open in his call for new leadership in terms of having a break from the current Democratic leadership. Um, and he has been heavily involved in recruiting and supporting a number of these candidates who really are emerging as top-tier Democratic veteran candidates. Um, and they are running in places like Kentucky and North Carolina and Illinois and uh, you know, other um, very high-profile competitive races. And, and it's interesting that this Democratic congressman from Massachusetts does have such close ties to, to them. Um, he's also good friends with Mike Gallagher, a Republican congressman uh, from Wisconsin, also a Marine veteran that, that we've talked about some uh, on this show as well, who on the Republican side is is also supportive of, of getting more veterans into Congress. But, you know, broadly speaking, they talk about uh, this idea of the 9-11 generation, um, you know, sort of these younger candidates who made the decision to go to war after 9-11, and, and, and you know, many of these candidates have the message of country over party. They say, you know, Dan McCready was saying, you know, we didn't say, okay, Democrats go take the hill, Republicans stay back. That was one of, one of his lines. Um, you know, it, it, you talked about how in the military, you know, people really did look past those divides, and, and they say they want to bring that approach to Congress. And, you know, certainly um, being a veteran opens doors in Republican districts. Uh, no question about that. Now, does it get you across the finish line? That's a different story. Probably bashing Pelosi also opens some doors in, in this area. Well, certainly they're betting that by taking the position, and a number of them have taken this position, that they don't support Pelosi for, for leadership, they be elected. You know, they, they are hoping that position helps not disqualify them. Now, Republicans will say, okay, you can say you're not going to vote for Pelosi for leader, but are you going to take money that she helped raise, and where are you going to actually break with her on policies? It's one thing to not vote for her, but if you're voting in line with her, you know, it's, it's the same problem. And there's a lot of Republican voters uh, who have that concern as well. And so that a ch one of the, you know, big challenges for some of these Democrats running in moderate seats is, can they show their independence from the National Party, not just by saying they don't support Nancy Pelosi, but actually carving out a more substantively independent profile. Um, and some are trying to do that, and, and, and some are more comfortable aligning with the National Party, depending on the district. Okay. Hey, well, Katie, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. This is fun. So Dan McCready and Mark Harris, both in North Carolina's 9th District, are going to be politicians we should watch through November. Speaking of politicians we should watch, it's time for the lightning round. Everyone's favorite segment, or at least my favorite segment. Andrea, you're up first. All right, I want to do a campaign ad running in South Carolina right now, which uh, collectively you and I have watched mm, probably millions of campaign millions. ads. I would say yep, billions. In actually. our hotline, National Journal Days, but never have I ever seen one where a politician is asking, well, an incumbent anyway, is asking uh, constituents to call his personal cell phone number with their questions. It's a that's what Representative Mark Sanford is doing right now in the final stretch of a closer than expected primary. You know things must be rough if that's the case. Mark Sanford is known for a lot of un unusual activity for an elected official. Mm, 
What do you mean, Alex? <laughs> what possibly could I be referring to? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't think we need to go. I don't think we need to hike that particular trail, so to speak. Well put. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Mine is Katie Porter. Who is Katie Porter, you ask? Well, last week I was in Orange County for the California primaries. She ended up being the Democratic nominee or the de facto Democratic nominee in California's 45th district, which sits in the heart of Orange County, once the the ultimate stronghold for the Republican Party. Now, this is a district that Democrats think they can win. It's a district that Hillary Clinton did win in 2016. The interesting part about this and the interesting reason I, I want to highlight Katie Porter, Katie Porter is not some moderate Democrat. She's not Dan McCready, for instance. She is an Elizabeth Warren acolyte. She supports Medicare for all. She is a progressive. She is a liberal. And it is a great test of whether a liberal candidate like her can win in one of these new suburban battleground districts. So Katie Porter, definitely a candidate to watch. And incidentally, since this whole show has been about our ground game project, look for my forthcoming story, uh, my forthcoming ground game story on Katie Porter coming out in a few weeks. From the OC. California. I was literally thinking that song the whole time I was there, actually. Okay, Andrea, it has, as always, been a pleasure doing this with you. This was fun. Let's do it again sometime. Next week? Next week. Yeah, let's do next week. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith, and thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk, Talk to, to you, you next week. week.